1: This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Opinions matter. Time now for today's big thing with character and Smallman on 101 ESPN.
2: It's already 9.03. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Great to have you with Michelle and I here on 101 ESPN. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to the mad Hungarian Al Roboski, who obviously was a cardinal analyst during that 1998 home run chase, Maguire and Sosa. And we'll have the documentary Long Gone Summer on ESPN on Saturday. Sunday night, but Michelle, as we look at today's big thing, we really haven't had a lot of comments from actual baseball owners until the last couple of days. You had the the Snell comments. You had uh, the comments on social media by Bryce Harper. You've had a couple of other players that have spoken up. But until the last couple of days, Bill DeWitt of the Cardinals and Ken Kendrick of the Diamondbacks, you haven't had individual owners step up to kind of defend themselves. And I wonder if this is planned or if it's just uh, an interesting coincidence that Frank Cusimano over at 590 and uh, Doug and Wolf at Arizona Sports in Phoenix, if they ask for the owners on the same day and they wound up getting them.
3: It could be a coincidence but I also know Mr. Dewitt is a very smart guy and I don't think that he would choose the day that he goes on and talks about this stuff in a light manner I think it had it, it these talks are at a very contentious point, and we're running out of runway here. We're running out of time. So I definitely think that there is some strategy involved when he decided to speak out.
2: The owner of the Diamondbacks made some interesting comments yesterday, and to me, they are logical comments. And he talked about the idea of the prorated salaries of Major League Baseballs being a point of contention right now in these negotiations. So
0: I think we have been negotiating... Uh, from the standpoint that there is a false premise that the agreement reached in early March required a rate of salaries to be paid. Um, that's just not accurate. I mean, it's, it's so inaccurate uh, that it, it, it just infuriates me every time I I know that's the position the players are taking. Uh, I believe they're heavily influenced by outside forces to take that position. But that, that was built around the idea that we would come back and play baseball under normal circumstances. I think in March, we weren't really any of us thinking it was likely we would, uh, we would lose the fans from our game. But we are going to lose the fans from our game in terms of being in the ballpark, that is.
2: I think when he talks about outside influences, he's talking about Scott Boris predominantly.
3: That's the conclusion I came to. And... While I understand why he would say that, because you're hoping that the players will hear it and say, hey, don't listen to what this guy's telling you. He's doing this for his his own money, his own benefit. I also think if you're a player and you already have this negative viewpoint of how the owners view you, that you're going to hear those comments and say, oh, so you think we're not smart enough to come to this conclusion on our own? You think that we're that malleable, that Scott Boris can convince us to take this stance? So I just think that the owners... While they're they're saying things that a reasonable person could take in and and consume one way or the other, I think if you're a player and you hear that, you might take take some offense to that.
2: Well, a couple of points here. Number one, and I think the most important point, is that across the country, and people say, well, don't compare baseball to any other business, and I'm not comparing it. I'm just making the point that pretty much every business in America has seen a decline in revenues, and 40 million people are out of work, Mm. and numerous other people are furloughed or have taken pay cuts across sports and across America. So why should baseball players be any different? Granted, they are taking a... Pay cut because of the, of the proration they're working for half. But if the if the numbers are going to be down forty percent, revenue is going to be down forty percent. That's obvious because they don't have fans and they don't have concessions and they don't have things. Then the players, I believe, should be amenable to at least negotiating. Another reason they should be amenable to negotiating is because their people, and this is point number two, in that meeting in March, agreed to revisit the salaries and the Lawyers had the notes. The Major League Baseball players had the notes. Joel Sherman in the New York Post had that email of what they had talked about. So, essentially, the players' union is reneging on something that they had agreed to if, indeed, they weren't going to have fans.
3: Yeah, the smoking gun email.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh, But, again, you need the players to take that stance. You need them to concede some things. By leaking that stuff to the media, you're not going to endear them to want to come to the table and help you out here.
2: One other thing that Ken Kendrick said, and by the way, I do agree with him on this, because when you look, we mentioned the $10 billion last year that baseball took in from a revenue standpoint, and players made $4.4 billion, 44% players were offered 50 percent of the revenue that teams take in what players should have said is hey you know what we'll take that as long as we can put that in a new cba that you get 50 and we get 50 players were offered that in 1994 that's why they had the strike they didn't want a salary cap now they should want it and for whatever reason they think that owners are going to give them more than 50 percent of their revenues i'm here to tell you that ain't happening
3: never gonna happen
2: ever and ken kendrick compares baseball to other sports
0: why is it that we are the only sport that doesn't have revenue sharing you know all of the other major sports have revenue sharing and so what would be happening right now if think about it if this situation would have evolved and we would be in a revenue sharing model we would be acting as partners to get back together and put the game on the field. Wow. The, 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 the very lack of a revenue-sharing model puts us in a adversarial position when we really ought to be partners in advancing the game and building the revenues because all will win under those circumstances. No. Why is it that the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL, both their ownership group and their uh, uh, union leadership have recognized the value in that kind of a system and our union leadership takes the position that's a non-starter you know we wouldn't even be in a discussion right now if we had revenue sharing
2: ken kendrick i can tell you it's because you redacted all the numbers in your local <laughs> uh, when you open the books in your, in your local tv regional sports network uh revenue findings or reveals you redacted all the numbers the players don't know what your revenue is how can you share revenue when you don't know what the revenue is
3: what sane person is going to agree to that deal with the numbers blocked out no nobody would ever go into a a situation like that and say okay you want me to take 50 percent of what oh you're not going to tell me it's a question mark okay i'll sign i'll let me sign up no one's going to do that
2: No, and I am with him 100%. There should be revenue sharing among the owners, and there is limited revenue sharing now. Every team takes 37% of their revenue, I believe it is, puts it into a pot, and then it's redistributed among all the teams with the lower revenue-generating teams getting more. It's not like the NFL where you throw everything into a pot except for club seats and luxury seats, and it's all divided equally among the teams. It's a different type of revenue sharing among the owners. But if the owners are willing to split all of their revenues, give every team the same amount of income. So whether it's the Royals or the Yankees, everybody's making the same amount. And then you tell the players exactly what that amount is. Don't fudge. And then you say, okay, players, you get 50% of this and you convince the players that you're being truthful and honest with them. I think players would be on board with that. But the lack of trust of the owners by the players is why we are where we are.
3: We need someone to stand in the middle that both sides trust. We need a a true mediator in this situation. We don't need Scott Boris lighting the flames further. We need someone who is—I don't know who this person is—but a neutral party that both sides understands has their best interest and the best interest of the sport at heart. That can go to them and say, "Hey, why don't you consider this?" And hey, players, why don't you consider this? Because it seems like the way that this is structured right now, there's there's nobody on either side that either side trusts.
2: No, the owners like having the hammer. They do have the hammer and they don't want to give it up that's where we are and that's today's big thing
3: it's been the big thing for the past couple weeks right?
2: i know i'm kind of
3: bored with it but i am so over it it. i'm so over it i don't want to talk about it ever again
2: well we certainly aren't going to talk about it in our next segment (laughs) because you're killing me smalls it's coming your way on 101 espn
1: What's totally killing Smalls right now?
3: You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls,
1: with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN.
2: It is time for You're Killing Me Smalls on 101 ESPN. And, Michelle, before you start talking...
3: You're killing me, Smalls! (laughs) Thank you, Randy. I probably would have stumbled over it again (laughs) today. Uh, So, Randy, yesterday you and I talked about mentally preparing ourselves in the event that we don't have baseball this season. Now, fingers crossed that we don't even have to worry about this. But we said, just like any major issue, you have to have a... a a plan in place right mm-hmm. and part of our plan is to read some baseball books and so we talked about the best baseball books uh, that were out there we asked people to send in suggestions and we got so many great suggestions that we realized okay this isn't going to be a one and done thing we're not going to read one great baseball book we're going to have to dive into a few of these so we decided to do a character and Smallman book club baseball book club so I've tweeted, I, we've crowdsourced the top four choices, and I've tweeted them out. So go out there. If you want to be a part of the book club, let your voice be heard. Vote in this poll that we have on my Twitter feed, at mSmallman, and we are going to get going on this soon. We need to pick a start date.
2: We can do that. I don't know what the, uh, we what we need to do is, well, we'll we'll have a book by tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, Yes, 24 afternoon. hours. So maybe on Friday morning, we'll have our book and we can come up with our start date. Do do we have to have the book read by that date?
3: So, with a lot of book clubs, they will do it by chapter. So, it'll, like, say there's nine chapters in the book obviously it'll be longer than that but we will talk about it after we read the first three chapters and we'll set the date if like if we started on a monday by friday you have to read x amount of chapters and we'll talk about it as we go or we could just say hey read the entire book by this date and we'll give our review by this date. i
2: like the chapter by chapter i think that fits better
3: okay great well the top four that we have gotten from the fans that they wanted to read were ball four Three Nights in August, Stranger to the Game, Bob Gibson Gibson Book, and Moneyball, classic baseball book. So if you care which one we read first, head and vote. And by the way, I learned today, Randy, never hashtag BBC.
2: Yeah, uh, I wasn't aware of this either, but no, it's it's NSFW.
3: We were thinking Baseball Book Club, BBC, and then I got a heads up, hey, you probably don't want to hashtag that.
2: Thank you. So
3: we we reposted it. So if you've already voted, go ahead and vote again.
2: (laughs) Again, (laughs) part of the uh, the smartest and the most open minded, apparently, audience in sports talk radio.
3: Yeah, but uh, I'm, tra- I'm not trying to get fired. So we deleted the first post and, yeah, we, and we reposted. So go ahead, let your voice be heard. The book club will be starting soon. And go to M. M Smallman to vote. Smalls. Say that again. No,
2: go to M. Smallman on Twitter to vote. S M A L L M O N.
3: You're killing me, Smalls. See, I didn't step over it, but then I signaled I for it too <laughs> soon. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't get this right. Okay, Randy, some positive news. After 10 years, 10 years, Reggie Bush and USC seem to be coming back together. The disassociation that Reggie had from the school, it was a 10-year statue. It's coming to an end. And it seems like USC and Reggie Bush are in talks to welcome him back into the USC family. And if you remember 10 years ago, this is when the NCAA infractions committee um, said, hey, Reggie Bush is in some trouble because of the fact that he had extra benefits during his time at USC while he was a student athlete. He accepted cash, travel expenses, and a home in the San Diego area where his parents lived rent-free for more than a year. And they provided him 10 grand to furnish the home he got in a lot of trouble, had to be disassociated from the school for 10 years, and he had to return his Heisman Trophy.
2: Well, number one, he was worth it.
3: (laughs) Definitely. Honestly, it was a bargain.
2: It really was. And number two, he'll be back sooner than Sammy Sosa will with the Cubs. And number three, he is a huge advantage now for USC. If he is back in the fold with he and Lineart back both doing Fox TV, doing pregame, and if you have a 17-year-old that knows anything about football or has watched highlights, or if you're a coach, just say, hey, uh, do, go to YouTube and type in Reggie Bush highlights and watch him because that's what we envision you being at USC. You're going to get a lot of kids because of that. I think it's good for USC to get him back, and I think it's good for him to be back in their graces. I never considered him a non-Heisman Trophy winner.
3: Me either. And I also thought it was ridiculous that he had such a harsh, such harsh penalties levied against him when you know that this is happening in college sports all of the time. To me, it felt like, OK, we're going to point the finger specifically at Reggie Bush rather than dismantle the entire system. Do you think that Reggie Bush getting in trouble stopped any team or any player from getting paid in in college football after no, that? for of whatever
2: reason, they were focused on USC. They they couldn't wait to get Carroll out of there that's why he ran to seattle so that he wouldn't get penalized by the ncaa and they couldn't wait to get reggie it i I have no idea why usc was such a focus for the ncaa but it was ridiculous
3: ridiculous i'm happy that his his 10-year punishment is over and that he's getting to go back there and hopefully gets the heisman back too because that was ridiculous
2: by the way i think we can make the argument safely that the NCAA by pushing Carol out ruined USC. One of their prime movers, their prime mover on the West Coast, hasn't been the same since.
3: No. They've been trying to rebound since. Absolutely. You're
4: killing me, small.
3: So, Randy, our friends in Wisconsin, we know that they like to have a few beers, yes, eat some che- cheese curds, have a good time. Well, our friend Kenyon Lambert, he's 40, he's from Milwaukee, he... <sighs> You know, I don't want to accuse him of of anything. But he decided he wanted to have a good time. We'll just say he decided he wanted to have a good time. And he broke into Miller Park last week. He took a tractor and went on a little joy ride in the stadium. He tried to carve his name in cursive on the grounds of the ballpark. He caused $40,000 in damage. He was arrested. He was charged with a felony count of criminal damage to property and misdemeanor disorderly conduct.
2: Come on, Kenyon. Just trying to have a good time, first of all. And the Brewers have done a lot worse to that turf over the years <laughs> than what Kenyon was able to do. But to me, this is a security issue. This isn't a Kenyon issue. As you mentioned, they have, uh, we say we have, we're a uh, drinking town with a baseball problem. Yes. They are a. Uh, they're a drinking town with a drinking problem. <laughs> they have more c- per capita bars in in Wisconsin than any other state in the Union. And they should have fully expected that Kenyon or somebody was going to try something like this. You have to improve your security. This is totally on the brewers in Miller Park and really has nothing to do with Kenyon at all.
3: Wait until I tell you how he got into the park, Randy. He was walking around the stadium, found an unlocked door. And he walked into the field, he (laughs) commandeered the tractor because he'd never driven one, and he said, hey... the door is unlocked. I'm not trespassing. I'm walking right in. And somebody left a key to the tractor. This is just like what happened with the Astros hacking scandal. I'm like, if I was the judge in that situation, I'd say, you didn't change your password. This is on you. This is a you problem. How many times are we we told by our cybersecurity people, hey, it's been 60 days. Change your password. You didn't change your password. That's a you problem. You didn't lock the door. That's a you problem.
2: Did we get a photo of the KL in the turf? I wonder how that looked.
3: I have not seen one, no, but I'm sure it exists. Well, you would think if he stumbles in, he gets on the tractor, he wants to put his name in there, that he has the photo somewhere.
2: He has to have. You
3: know he's got the photo.
2: And one final note here. You mentioned the word stumble, which he clearly did.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I do not want to accuse him of anything, but let's just jump to a conclusion.
2: If it wasn't going to be Kenyon Lambert, then there was going to be another... Wisconsinite stumbling into Miller Park and trying to do the exact same thing. Like you said, it's a U problem for the Brewers and, and Miller Park.
3: And while causing damage to the baseball field certainly isn't encouraged, we've been in quarantine for a long yeah. time.
2: And they're using it.
3: Right, and Kenny was probably thinking, okay, you know what? I miss baseball. I am sick of these guys arguing. I may or may not have had, you know, 15 Miller Lights. My judgment may be a little skewed. I don't know what he was consuming that night. But either way, when you think about it, think about how angry we are at baseball right now. Mm-hmm. And then you're just walking by Miller Park, the door is unlocked, and you're like, hey, if you guys don't want to use this field, I'm going to go ahead and use it. <laughs> <Try> ah- <to. laughs>
2: Thanks, Michelle. You got it, Randy. That's your killing me, Smalls, on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we're going to head back to our Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Al Raboski, longtime Cardinal analyst, was the analyst during 1998 when McGuire hit those 70 home runs. And we're going to talk to the mad Hungarian next on 101 ESPN. Now, it's time
1: for Long Gone Summer on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text QUOTE to 65780 to see how you
2: can save. Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Character. It is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN, and we are approaching the documentary Long Gone Summer on Sunday night on ESPN. It's the story of Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa's home run chase, their dramatic home run chase of 1998, and Al Roboski was there to chronicle it for the Cardinals on FS Midwest. He, of course, was uh, the, the lead analyst at that time, and he joins us now in the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN. Al, it's always good to talk to you, sir. How you doing?
5: I'm doing good. I just wish we were watching baseball. No doubt about it. And Have you had,
2: since you were a little kid, a summer without baseball?
5: Uh, no. <laughs> you know, we've had some parts of, uh, of summers with some of the strikes and work stoppages. But, uh, you know, we've had labor peace for, I guess, since 94. Um, but this is very, very unusual. But, you know, nobody's seen these times before.
3: Al, do you have any confidence that the players and the owners are going to be able to come to an agreement and that we will see baseball in 2020?
5: <laughs> well, I'd like to think so. I mean, there's so much money involved for both sides. Uh, You'd just like to see people come together and, and get this thing done. Um, you know, it just, when I look back at, uh, like I said, 19, I guess, what was it, uh, 19, oh, 70 uh, no, I'm sorry, not 70, but... Uh, Seventy-one, seventy-two. when we first had some of the labor stoppages, you know, lockouts and everything else, we had nothing. So it was really, you know, we had to fight for stuff. We were fighting for stuff like just uh, having the right to to have spring training, um, you know, have, go get a condominium or go get some, some place that you didn't have to stay at the hotel, um, meal money, different things that way. Um and now, you know, like you say, you know, it's it's a fight between billionaires and millionaires. You wish everybody would be able to come together.
2: Al Roboski with us on one oh one ESPN and Al you, you pitched in the old Bush Stadium when when it was really big and before it had been reconfigured, and the Cardinals just didn't have home run hitters before Mark McGuire got here, the home run record was 43 by Johnny Mize and the Cardinals get him in 97 and he hits all those home runs 24 in a couple of months. And I know I went through that off season of 97, 98 thinking, man, he's got a chance to uh, reach this record of 61 home runs. Do you recall what you were thinking that off season in that spring?
5: No, I think we were just excited. I, I mean, you knew there was the potential when he hit forty nine home runs in his rookie year, and uh, and missed the last few games because of the birth of his son. So, you know, when I played Randy, it was four fourteen to center field. Um, it was a big ballpark, and three I think it was three eighty nine to the Power Alleys. But you know, you we still had some big guys. You know, the Stargills. You know, you had the Frank Howards. You have you know uh, McCovey. All these guys but you would rarely see a home run that was hit the dead center field, or you didn't see middle infielders hitting opposite field home runs. Um, I mean, it was a luxury when you were pitching at Bush Stadium that if you fell behind the count, you know, 3-0, you could just throw a high fastball up and away, and the guy was going to hit, you know, a fly ball, can of corn. Um, but that has all changed, and, and really it can't be all steroids. Because, you know, like I said, there were some huge guys in the past. Um, maybe they, we didn't lift weights, but they were country strong. You know, guys would work on a farm. You know, they grew up on a farm. They're throwing bales of hay all the time. Or, or, you know, in the period of time where guys had to work in the off season. you know, they, sometimes they were bricklayers. You can't tell me some of those guys weren't as strong as the guys today.
3: Al, what was it like calling games at that time? Because a a big part of your job is preparation, but another big part is just reacting to something that happens. And you can't predict what will happen. But this was an interesting experience because you're going to the ballpark knowing what the storyline is going to be and knowing that something special is going to happen almost every night.
5: It it was so strange because, um, you know, you loved being part of the McGuire era. And Mark was a fascinating guy and, and really a people person. But, you know, he just, because of, you know, the stature he had gotten to and just this kind of a, you know, a a hero image and everything before anybody knew anything about the steroids. uh, You know, there were the rumors and everything, but, but it was like the bet. It was fun to experience it, but I was so happy when it was over because then we could go back to playing winning baseball. You know, in those days, it was all about McGuire. You know, he had to put on a show for batting practice. People were, you know, coming out early to watch batting practice. Then he started letting people on the field. And now you see how that has evolved during, uh, during for everybody now. But, this, you know, the emphasis was on Maguire hitting a home run. It wasn't about the team winning. And so it was, as fascinating, as much fun as that was, I was so glad it was over because then we got back to the concept of we've got to win as a team. You know, the championship season is the most important thing, not a home run chase.
2: And it was interesting because the Cardinals had every expectation that Maguire was going to be a guy that hit a lot of home runs and they were going to, he was going to be the centerpiece. Chicago certainly didn't expect Sammy to hit 66, and Chicago was really good. They were built to get to the playoffs that year, and they did. And it, they were two differently built teams that year. I, I'm with you. I think the Cardinals, that particular year, were built in, in many ways so that uh, Maguire could be the centerpiece and, and set that record.
5: No doubt about it. And and if you really look back on it, uh, we all as baseball and Cardinal fans can thank McGuire because he brought in so much more revenue and uh, ownership is, is really done under DeWitt's ownership. They have uh, reinvested a lot of that money back into the talent. Uh, people may not realize, but it was, what was it, 95 was the first year that uh, uh, Bill DeWitt's ownership group bought the club. But, you know, the final year of payroll for, for the Anheuser-Busch Cardinals was like $28 million.
3: Al, how did you view what was happening with McGuire through a pitching lens? Did you empathize or sympathize with the pitchers knowing, hey, there's really nothing that you can do to get this guy out? He's going to tag you one way or the other.
5: Well, Michelle, I mean, it's it's I looked at it where just people were not pitching to his weakness. They, they were almost pitching to his strength. And what I mean by that when somebody is big as strong as he is, you got to pitch him inside. You've got to go up and in. But it was almost like an unwritten rule around the league is we can't get uh, McGuire hurt. We've got to let him you know break this record or we got you know, and I'm not saying they were not being competitive, but you know they did not try to pitch to get him out per se. Uh, You've got to go up and in on a guy that, that big. He wanted to get his arms extended. And you just look at so many of those pitches, they were supposed to be hit out.
2: Al Roboski with us on one one ESPN. And, Al, as a pitcher, you were highly competitive. So I want to get your take on, and we talked to Steve Traxel last week who allowed number 62. And some of the Cubs players, as McGuire was rounding the bases after he hit number 62, actually he either high-fived or low-fived everybody on the infield. Then Sammy came in to hug him. Again from your perspective as a competitor as a pitcher what did you think of that
5: Well I, I like I said I think this was it was almost bigger you're coming kind of uh trying to get to over the the bad taste in everybody's mouth with a strike and so that was part of the healing process Cal Ripken breaking you know the the iron man record uh Sammy and, and Mark with the home run record of of 98 I think it was part of the healing process so I mean, as a competitor, I wouldn't have liked any of that kind of stuff. I hated it when, when you know, somebody would, um, you know, hit a double off you or something like that and you, and you re- comes into second base and your shortstop in second baseman would go over and slap high fives or talk to him and everything. Else. I didn't like that. So I wasn't going to like uh, giving up a home run to anybody. But as I said, it was almost, it was more important for the game uh, for that home run chase to go on than it was to you know from a, a team standpoint to see the team win um, but it was it was different definitely different and like i said i was happy it was over so we could get back to winning baseball
2: and now we we look at now and the dispute between owners and players and the difficulty that fans are having coming to grips with it and fans are upset with the game and we've tried to imagine what could happen that would bring fans back if indeed we don't have a season this year or if it's a truncated season and i've said before apologies to rick patino but mcguire and sosa aren't walking through that door i don't know who it is or what it is that brings fans from a a circumstance like we're, we're in right now
5: yeah, it's very difficult because, you know, you not only, you know, no baseball, but with the pandemic going on, it's the double whammy. And, uh, you know, and then you've got uh, the, the you know, the social unrest. You've got uh, an election year. I mean, there's so many things that are distracting. Uh, and and anytime you know, fans feel like they have to take a side, owners or players, you know, there's going to be that, that uh, you know, conflict there and and we just wish you could get back to where people could enjoy baseball
2: no doubt al raboski great to hear your voice thanks so much for taking some time with us we do appreciate it and as we get playing we'll talk to you again soon
5: yeah tell danny Mack i said hi and i'm tired of hearing mention schnipps
2: <laughs> <laughs> you got it we'll do. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. That's the right, Mad- bye bye. Bye. That's the Mad Hungarian Al Robbinski on 101 ESPN. Speaking of Danny Mac, he's got scoops with Danny Mac coming up at the top of the hour and we'll cross things over toward his show next on 101 ESPN and of course we want you to know that it is long gone summer week on 101 ESPN. Long gone summer. The story of the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa is set to air as part of the 30 for 30 series this Sunday night on ESPN. In anticipation of the premiere, 101 ESPN is looking back at that memorable year, including on-air interviews all week long with many different coaches and athletes involved with the 98 season. Check out the schedule of upcoming guests and clips of interviews from Long Gone Summer Week. Now at 101ESPN.com. Long Gone Summer Week on 101 ESPN is brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text QUOTE to 65780 to see how you can save. And we should note that Mark McGuire will join us tomorrow morning at 845 here on Carricker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Danny Mack coming up with Carricker and Smallman.
1: Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs, the crossover on 101 ESPN. Tune in this Saturday as we revisit another classic NBA Finals game on 101 ESPN. Get geared up for some amazing NBA action. This Saturday from 2011, it's the NBA Finals, Team 2, Mavs and Heat. It all kicks off here Saturday night at 7 on the home for classic NBA action, 101 ESPN.
2: Been ready for scoops with Danny Mack and Dan McLaughlin. Joins us now as we get ready to head toward his show from 10 to 11 here on 101 ESPN. Dan, I made the point earlier in the 7 o'clock hour, and we can circle back because I know we have a lot of different listeners. Uh, Yesterday, on Frank Cusimano's show on 590, Bill DeWitt mentioned that as an industry, the profit margin for baseball is not great. And I made the point, if you look up the most profitable industries in the world right now or in America, baseball is not one of them. It's their profit margin about 15%. If you look at his main industry, the investment industry, profit margins like 42%. So if you look at it from a rich guy's perspective, and he's talking about himself, he, he's, and it's all relative, but other industries, if you're in the estate planning industry, you're making 65% profit. So for him, 15% isn't
4: that great. Well, let's, uh, let's make sure we understand this. And I knew you're going to bring this up shockingly. Um, I've worked for Mr. DeWitt for nearly 25 years. I think he and his family are unbelievable stewards of the franchise. Uh, I can tell you on a personal level, I can tell you with people that I've worked with, they have handled us with great care and respect. Us being employees of the Cardinals. Correct. Um, i think the timing of the comment uh was not great i think we all could agree with that um the the thing that we also would look at if i'm a fan out there i'd say well wait, wait a minute now you you bought the franchise for 150 you flipped the parking garages and it's now worth for, uh, to forbes' estimates well over 2 billion dollars it's hard to say that there's not profit there. That's the profit. The everyday business side of it is not as great as people would think. That is true. Um, there's not a lot of dividends being passed out, meaning that at the end of the year, you know, hey, investor, here's your 100000 and here's your $1.5 and here's your, your $500 million. It, it, That doesn't happen. And to their credit, they have put a ton back into the actual business of baseball in trying to develop players. Uh, I think they've got nearly 400 employees. So to what he's saying is true. It's not as great or as profitable as people may think. Now, the overall pie of the franchise, yes, that has been very good. So if he decides to put the... the. Uh, franchise on the market, um, he's going to make a lot of money. I mean, he's going to make tons of money, and he's going to double that and triple that investment and quadruple it and take it and take it and take it. I get it. But But he's not selling the franchise. He's not selling the franchise. franchise. I, I just think we have a situation here where emotions and nerves are really raw, and we're dealing with a coronavirus uh, we're dealing with social unrest. We're dealing with unemployment. And I go back to when I hear Blake Snell talk about it, or I read Jack Flaherty's comments on Twitter, or I hear Scott Boris talk about it, or now I'm hearing some of the owners come out and talk about it. Nobody wants to hear about the money side of this. Right. Nobody. I, I, I hope th- I'm, I'm saying that point. right.
2: No, uh, you, you are. And I know Michelle has something to add here, but I just want to make this point. Uh, you talk about the stewardship of... The ball club and the way that the DeWitt family has treated the employees. Let's also point out that in downtown St. Louis, before the DeWitts built an office building at Ballpark Village, the last time a class class A office space had been built in St. Louis was the Met Square building in 1988. So we went 30 years without class A office space being built in St. Louis. And who built it? It, it was the Cardinals. It was the DeWitt family. So not only are they great stewards of uh, of the ball club for us,
4: but they're great members of our community. Well, they've done a lot, and there's no doubting that. I, I will say, though, it, it just, the, the timing of it is not great. No, it's not. It's and, not. and, and th- you know, that's that's well, a fact.
2: There's never great timing for a billionaire to be saying,
4: yeah, this isn't as great as... Or Rick it's yeah. saying, what, it was right. biblical, biblical proportions biblical, yeah. Yeah. and... You know, people just don't want to hear it. They just want to see baseball back on the field. You know, my whole point, and I, I said this to you, and, and you started nodding your head in approval a month ago when we were doing this. <laughs> I, I still go back to this point. If you want to look at where we are at sports and baseball as it pertains to other sports, I have always felt that revenue sharing is where this thing needs to go, and they didn't want to do it in 94. Um I, I guess from the players' perspective, this is my guess. They just don't trust the books that they're opening up, the owners. Mm-hmm. But if you have revenue sharing, the top-end guys are still going to get their money. The lower-end guys are going to make a whole hell of a lot more money. And you you become a partner together to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why that's not talked about more. You, it's a partnership between the players and the owners. And collectively, you grow the game, whether it's in interest, but certainly financially. I think that's where it's got to go, but they don't want to do that. And There's let, just distrust yeah. between the two entities. And if Forbes is right, and
2: last year the revenues were roughly ten billion, I think what, what did they?
4: Oh, but the players got about what four point four point four. Okay, four point so 4. four for the seven hundred and fifty players. That would have been six hundred million dollars more. Yeah
3: which is not a small amount no. of money. But don't you think then, Dan, if that's the case, the owners should be more transparent sure, about everything? And that's what Randy and I keep circling back to is, yes, that seems like a great solution to all of this, but then the owners need to come to the table with more transparency if that's what they really want to accomplish.
4: Again, though, we're not in those meetings. Maybe they are. Yeah, Maybe great, they are being point. transparent. And the, the players are saying, no, we don't believe it. Well, here are the books. Get an outside auditor to come in and say, here you go. That's the key. You know, get get somebody that has no vested interest on either side, get the books, and truly have, by law, the books to look at and say, this is what you're making. Now, the question for me then would become, and this is really uh, a thousand... Uh, foot view of this is what are you making off a ballpark village what are you making off the atlanta braves and what they've done around that complex what is wrigleyville worth is that part of the collective pie what are your tv contracts looking like what you know the advertising inside of those i mean all that stuff is part of this but I, i want i just want to make this really clear and and fans god love them i mean they they can they 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 get up and down with the wins and the losses that's that's what fans are are about but i'm telling you these are good people they are good people now they're not in the business of losing money okay none of these people are that's why they're worth a billion Mm dollars and so this is a tough year on everybody and again i think emotions are just so raw that anytime you hear these kind of things what i would have loved to have seen in that interview with mr dewitt is let him make that comment but then say Here's why I'm saying it, because it's easy to take the clip, put it out there and just say, well, these owners are greedy. That's easy to do. That's what we do in the media many times. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the position of the baseball or you're talking about something in social unrest and you grab a clip and you put it out there and it's, well, it's fact. No, it's not. Let him get into why he feels that way. And I'm not sure we know that.
3: I also think when you think about Bill DeWitt specifically, yes, he's a businessman. He's a brilliant businessman. But you mentioned he's a steward of St. Louis. He's a steward of the game. I would think of all owners that we're hearing from, to hear him make those comments, knowing he's a fan of the game, that he understands the viability of baseball game. is at risk, That that I would hope a lot of people would take the time to actually listen to the entire thing and read all of the quotes and understand maybe where he's coming from.
4: I agree. I just don't think fans want to hear it. You know, right now I understand what you're saying. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but at this point, whether it's Bill DeWitt or player X, I just don't think people want to hear it at all. I think they just want to say, "Okay, we got baseball back. We're going to have a diversion." And I'm not so sure. And I've been saying this from day one. The more I read about what's going on with all these sports coming back, I'm not sure they can even pull this thing off. Right. And yet here we are talking about the economics of it, and it it is going to bleed into the next CBA. It's going to get ugly, and it's unfortunate. And Mr. DeWitt does care about the sport. He does care about uh, St. Louis, and he cares about the fans. I know that for a fact. It is a fact. Um, But again, these guys aren't used to losing money. It's not easy to do. And um, the comments are out there now, and and people digest them any way they want. I am a fan with a high level of frustration. There are thousands
2: of Cardinal fans out there. That being said... If Mr. Dewitt could hook me up with a deal on curly fries for a while, yeah, at Arby's,
4: <laughs> I my level of frustration would diminish a little bit. So it's really about you. So you've turned into a player. You, you want you want something. You as Blake Snell said, I want gotta, I want my curly fries. You, I, I got to get mine during this rona <laughs> or whatever he bro, said, yeah, bro. bro. If I get the rona, <laughs> as he? I mean, I said it at the time. Whether people want to believe, I said he is now the face of what the players are being looked at yeah. among the the public. Yeah. Terrible. Um, it's interesting though that the owners now are starting to come out with uh, what they're saying. I I wonder if there is not a sense of urgency to get a deal right now because the owners then can say, "Well, we tried." We're going to give you 50 games, and we can start on August first. Right there, you go. Yeah, that's what, what it'll be. Take it or leave it. Arby's curly
2: fries are at least tied for first as the best fries
3: ever.
2: Ever. I don't
4: eat French fries anymore. Well, you did. Well, when I did, they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, I'm, I'm going bad. old school McDonald's, man. Those are, yeah, those can those we do some too. greasy old school McDonald's? Salt them up with like a pound of salt. Yeah. Oh, beautiful.
3: I stand by the fact that the best fries in St. Louis are at Max Local Eats. They have the Rip Fries. Have you ever had those? Yes. Pretty oh, the, good. The Red Hot Ripplets. They're coated yeah. in it. Amazing. That's it's pretty
2: about, by the way, because
4: part of Mr. DeWitt's fortune is owning multiple Arby's franchises. What do you guys think about what he said? I mean, you, you guys are smart. You're, you're, you take it in as a, you know... Your fans, yes, we're all fans, but yet you you kind of are calculated with what you think about it and and how it was presented. What do you what do you think?
2: Well, I, I take it in as number one, he's a representative of, of ownership, so he's going to try to get his viewpoint out there. But I also, and I've done this, and you do this, and Bernie was great at this as a columnist. What I try to do is not just focus in uh, with a, a, a micro view. I try. When so you're not just taking the bite, yeah. right? I, I, I look at it. I try to look at it from all angles and have a macro view, and that's why I I look at it from, try to look at it from, even though I never will be one, a rich guy's perspective. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I get where he's coming from, from that perspective.
3: I understand it from all perspectives. I understand why the fans are annoyed and frustrated. I understand why the players say, hey, I only have a finite amount of time to make money in this game. And I'm just a cog in this in this whole operation. And we've already agreed to take a pay cut. I get where they're coming from. I get that the owners are looking at what they're projected to earn this year and saying, hey, we're losing a ton of money. You guys are going to have to help us out here. I get all sides, which I think is kind of the problem. You know what could
4: happen, though? Honestly, I mean, through all this is that it's ugly. It's been terrible for the sport PR perspective, which I'm not sure all those inside the sport understand what the general public is feeling about this. I'm not sure. I think they do, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Is that all of a sudden you get through all this and it gets ugly and players are upset and they have to report and there's only 50 games and all of a sudden it's over. It shuts down. The virus yeah. dictates. And now, where are you at? That'd be bad. It would be awful. That was the character and Smallman podcast on
2: 101 ESPN.